following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Second Corinthians. Uh, this is not one of the more well-known books in the Bible. It's a little bit more obscure. Uh, it's, it's kind of like all the other seconds in the Bible. You know, Second Samuel, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Second Thessalonians. No one really knows much about those books. They're kind of obscure. You know, all the seconds tend to be the poor cousin to the first. You know this if you're a second child, right? It's always the first that get attention. It's always the first that get the limelight. It's the first that get the recognition. I know because I'm a first child. That's, <laughs> that's how it should be, right? But uh, 2 Corinthians kind of lost in obscurity a little bit, but we're going to bring it out of the shadows and we are going to look at this glorious book for the next several months. This is going to be our major teaching series this year. So I want to encourage you to read it. And uh, we have a companion. There is a companion commentary that you can purchase and the details for that are in your bulletins and we're going to have study sheets. We have the first one over at the Info Center and online if you want to grab those. But... um, this is, this is a book, 2 Corinthians, that I've gained a lot of encouragement from in my life. I've found it a really personally encouraging and uplifting book because of all the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and we'll talk about Paul in a minute, he's the author of this book, but of all the, of all the books, the letters that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians is quite unique. It's quite different. This is Paul's most personal letter. This is Paul's most vulnerable letter. When you read other letters that Paul wrote, when you read Romans, you read Galatians, you read Ephesians, you're seeing Paul's teaching and you're seeing Paul's theology and his doctrine. And that is all here too. That's all in 2 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians, what you really see is Paul the man. And this book gives us the clearest glimpse into Paul the man and all the highs and the lows of what he is going through in his life and in his ministry at this point. You, you feel the anguish of Paul in 2 Corinthians. You feel the pain. You feel the sorrow. You see the tears. You see the despair and the frustration and the heartache over how his relationship with this church is going at this point. But then you see the highs of his life as well. You see the joy and the encouragement and the comfort and the consolation that he receives from God and from other people. So this is a very human book. I mean, it's inspired scripture. It's inspired by God, but this is a very earthy human book. It's very real. It's very raw. It's very gritty. Uh, it, that's what makes it so rich, I think. So we're going to base ourselves in this book. And this morning, what we're going to do is just look at the first two verses. We, I promise we will pick up the pace after this. But this morning, or else we're going to be in it forever. But this morning, just two verses, just the first two verses, we're going to look at the greeting in this letter, which will introduce us to the author. It will introduce us to his audience, uh, and it will start to surface some of the major themes that we'll encounter in this letter. Just one, one prefatory remark here before we dive in. It may seem a little bit strange that we're doing a series in 2 Corinthians when we have not done a series in 1 Corinthians, but the reality is with Paul, you're always picking up the conversation halfway with Paul. Uh, you're never starting at the beginning. Even if we looked at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about a previous letter that he wrote to the church. And then probably there was at least one letter that he wrote in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So really, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. Okay, So just to confuse us all, there's a lot of correspondence that Paul had 
with this church in the city of Corinth. We only have two of those letters. So we are trying to pick up the background of the relationship between Paul and this church, and that requires piecing a few things together, and we'll do that as we go today, and we'll do that as we carry on through the series. So for today, first two verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul. All right, let's stop there. That's enough for now. Just one word, that'll do. Who's Paul? Who's this guy, Paul, who's writing this letter? Paul was a Jewish man. Uh, he was raised in a Jewish home. He had a very strict Jewish upbringing. And he went on to become a member of a group in first century Palestine called the Pharisees. You may have heard of the Pharisees. They pop up a lot in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus has a lot to do with the Pharisees. He uh, doesn't have a lot of time for them. He has some pretty harsh words to say about the Pharisees. Paul was a member of that group. He belonged to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were all about maintaining the faithfulness of Israel, maintaining Israel's faithfulness to God, maintaining Israel's covenant faithfulness to God, mainly through ensuring that Israel kept the law, kept the Torah, uh, in all of its intricate detail. And so the Pharisees made sure no one was transgressing the law and they ring-fenced the law with all kinds of other scrupulous commandments to make sure there was no possible way you could actually break one of the laws of Moses themselves. So the Pharisees were very, very intent on Israel being faithful to the law. And Paul was a Pharisee. But within the Pharisees, Paul belonged to a particular branch of the Pharisees. Paul belonged to a particularly hardcore, ultra-conservative, ultra-staunch, ultra-hardline group of Pharisees. And these were called the Shammai Pharisees. And this, there, there were different types of Pharisees. They weren't an homogenous group. And this particular group of Pharisees, this wing of the Pharisees, they believed that not only was it their role to keep Israel faithful to the law, but they believed they were justified in using physical violence against people who were leading Israel away from the law. So when they found people who they thought were contaminating the faith of Israel, when they found people who were discouraging others from keeping the law, when they found people who were leading people astray, leading people after other gods, other messiahs, other laws, other ways of living in the world away from God's covenant with Moses, when they found those people and when they found people who were influencing others in those directions, they would try to shut that movement down and shut those people down and exterminate them as quickly as possible. And they believed that using physical violence to do that was okay. In fact, they believed using physical violence to do that was glorifying to God because they were purifying the faith of Israel. They were purifying the, 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 the nation under God. So they would try, when they found these infidels, when they found these apostates, they would try and lock them up in prison if they could. They would go through official Roman channels to have these people crucified if they could, which is exactly what they did with Jesus. And if none of that worked, then they would just become vigilantes and they would take the law into their own hands and they would kill people, which is exactly what they did with Stephen the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. That's what happens. The Pharisees drag this guy out and they stone him. There's no legal proceedings. There's no going through the official government channels. They just get him and they just pelt him with stones until he dies. And you read the, the end of Acts 7 there. What does it talk about? Paul was there. Paul the Pharisee was there and he was giving his approval to the killing. He was holding the coats of these guys. 
while they stoned Stephen to death and he gave his approval to the killing. This was who Paul was. He honestly believed that it was glorifying to God to end the lives of people who he believed were a blight upon Israel leading other people astray. So Paul was a member of a group who believed in using physical violence against innocent civilians for religious and political motivations. Now, what do we call those people today? Terrorists. That's who Paul was in his life as a Pharisee. We often, Christians often think about Paul as a persecutor of the church, and that's true, but the word persecution is a bit of an old word, and it doesn't mean a lot to us today. A more modern word would be terrorist, and I I honestly don't use that word flippantly. You can historically, you can draw a line from the Shammai Pharisees that Paul belonged to in the first century Palestine right through to modern-day terrorist organizations like Boko Haram, like ISIS. They're doing, obviously for different reasons, but they are doing the same thing, using physical violence upon innocent civilians for political religion purposes. That's what Paul was doing. And by the way, politics and religion for Paul were completely enmeshed. There was no difference. Politics was religion. Religion was politics. They're all just, they're all together. So this is who Paul was. He was a terrorist. You know, sometimes we get this perspective of Paul before he became a Christian, like he was really just this guy who believed in salvation by works rather than by grace. That wasn't his biggest problem. His biggest problem was that he was a terrorist. That's who Paul was. And he targeted his terrorism against Christians, probably among other groups, but against Christians, because he saw them as infidels. The fact that Christians would worship a guy who had been crucified on a cross was blasphemy to Paul and the Pharaoh. Absolute blasphemy. By definition, they believe that anyone who's hung up on a cross like that is cursed of God. You're going to run after him and call him the Messiah? That was blasphemy. These Christians who, who, who are saying now that the law of Moses has been supplanted by the law of Christ. It's blasphemy. And so Paul made it his mission in life to wipe these guys off the face of the earth. He locked them up when he could, and at times he simply took their lives. And that's exactly what he was doing when he was on the way to Damascus, to lock Christians up in Damascus, when he met Jesus. And you can read that story in Acts chapter 9, that Paul the terrorist suddenly one day encounters the risen Jesus. Jesus appears to Paul on the Damascus road, and suddenly Paul is confronted by the stunning realization that this man who he'd been persecuting, this man who he had been trying to drive his followers off the face of the earth, this man was none other than Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. And that just fundamentally changed Paul's life. From that point on, Paul's entire life was radically re-altered from that. He had to rethink everything after the Damascus. He had to rethink who God was. He had to rethink who Israel was. He had to rethink his faith. He had to rethink his people. He had to rethink his history. He had to rethink the law. His entire worldview was just dismantled. And then it had to be rebuilt around the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul came to love Jesus. Paul came to be a follower of Jesus. He was personally transformed by the mercy of God. This man who was a terrorist against Christians became one of that group. He became a follower of Jesus. He became a member of the church. And then he was commissioned by Jesus 
to plant churches and to go and take this good news about Jesus to people beyond the homeland, beyond Palestine, out into the broader Greco-Roman world. And that's how Paul ends up planting a church in Corinth in the middle of the first century. He's commissioned by Jesus then to go and bear the name of God before the very people he hated more than anything else in the world, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so Jesus makes that Paul's mission. You take this, this gospel, you take this good news, and you take it to the Gentiles, to the ones beyond the Jewish people. And so that's what Paul did. That's how he ends up planting a church in Corinth in the middle of the first century. That's why Paul calls himself an apostle. If you look at the next phrase in uh, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle. It's the first two words in Greek of this book. Paulos apostolos, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, an apostle just means someone who is sent. It's his basic meaning, someone who is sent out. Uh, you have in the, in the New Testament the official 12 apostles. And these were the guys who lived with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus and traveled with him. And these were the guys who had been witnesses of his resurrection and had been commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel. Paul wasn't one of them. Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. Paul never knew Jesus. He never knew Jesus during his life. He'd not had anything to do with Jesus. So Paul was a latecomer to the apostles, but he had had his own encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. Paul had seen Jesus because Jesus appeared to him. Paul had been a witness of Jesus' resurrection, which is one of the qualifications of being an apostle. So Paul had been a witness of Christ's resurrection because it was the resurrected Jesus that appeared to him on the Damascus Road. Paul had been commissioned by Jesus because Jesus personally said to him, go and take my name among the Gentiles. So Paul considered himself to be an apostle, not part of the 12, not part of the original group, but he was the 13th man. He was the 13th apostle, and he considered himself to be equal to the other apostles, not inferior to them in any way. He was sent out to take the gospel just as the other 12 apostles were. But it's this idea of Paul as an apostle that's actually very central for understanding 2 Corinthians. Paul's role as an apostle, because it's his apostleship in this book that comes under attack. It's his apostleship in this book that is questioned and comes under scrutiny. What has happened is that after Paul left Corinth, he spent about 18 months in Corinth planting this church in the, in the 50s, in the, in the first century AD. And after he leaves Corinth, another group of teachers come into town. Another group of so-called apostles come into town. And Paul refers to these guys in 2 Corinthians, and he calls them super apostles. And that's in quotation marks because Paul's being sarcastic. He doesn't really think they're super apostles. He doesn't think they're that crash hot at all. So he's actually, Paul's not immune to a bit of sarcasm at times. He, just, he, he sort of just mockingly calls them these super apostles that have come into town. Let me just show you where he refers to these guys. Flick over to chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians. He has these veiled references to them all the way through, but in chapter 11 is his most overt description of these super apostles. In verse 5, he says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. And then you flick over to verse 13. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. So Paul doesn't hold back there, does he? He's uh, not particularly enamored with these teachers. The best way to think about these super apostles is that they seem to be what is called sophists. And sophists were paid philosophers. 
uh, in classical times. In the, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, they were, they were paid philosophers and they would roll into town and they would uh, ask for money in return for teaching philosophy, teaching debating, teaching uh, language, teaching argumentation, teaching rhetoric, and they would be... There was often with these guys, these sophists, there was more style than substance, but they were kind of the, the, the itinerant philosophers of the day. They were trained in Greek oratory, so they were great public speakers, these sophists, and they knew how to command an audience, and they were very precise, and they were very deliberate, and they were very eloquent with their speech, and they enamored everybody with their great oratory skills. They were trained in Greek rhetoric, which means they could turn a phrase. They knew how to use words. They knew how to use language and argumentation. They were debaters. They were trained in Greek philosophy, so they could espouse all these philosophical ideas and talk about the great philosophers and make these great speeches and talk about philosophical concepts and so on. These are the kinds of guys that seem to have come into town in Corinth and are influencing the church in some pretty negative ways. They seem to be, this particular group of sophists, they seem to be calling themselves Christians. And so they were preaching Jesus and they were preaching a version of the gospel, but it was a distorted version of the gospel, but they were really more sub, uh, style than substance. They, they were more form than content. And at the end of the day, these sophists, they were preaching themselves rather than preaching Christ. And the way they did that is by engaging in a whole lot of what Paul calls boasting. It's a big theme in 2 Corinthians. Paul uses the word boast or boasting 30 times in this letter. This letter is just shot through with references to boasting, and that's what these super apostles did. They just engaged in boasting and commending themselves all the time. And this was kind of an accepted practice in the ancient world. It's hard for us to get our heads around in this, in this culture, in our Kiwi culture, because we're, we're quite a self-deprecating sort of culture, and we don't like to boast. I mean, if you're standing around at a social gathering and someone starts talking themselves up, that's just awkward for us, right? Someone starts going on about their achievements and how great they are and name-dropping. We just cringe. That kind of stuff just turns people off. You're looking for a way out of the conversation at that point, right? But that's completely the opposite to Corinth. You have to imagine here a world in which boasting is so normal. And if you want to get ahead in life, if you want to get some social advantage, if you want to move up the hierarchy... You need to be prepared to boast. You need to be prepared to talk yourself up. And so any time they could, these super apostles, they'd take the opportunity just to have a little speech about themselves. And they'd talk up their educational achievements, and they'd talk up their political achievements, and, or their athletic achievements. They'd, talk, they'd name drop and talk about their connections. They'd talk about all the various projects around the city that they'd given money to. And I, I funded the theater over here, and I funded the public baths over here. And they would just, this was just what you did to get ahead. And you would try and gain honor through that process. Very honor and shame kind of culture. You would gain honor for yourself by talking yourself up. And in the process, you would just very politely try and shame a few other people, try and cast aspersions on a few other people. Because if you could push a few other people down, you might just be able to pull yourself up a little bit more. In fact, people would even engage and pay other people to do their boasting for them. It's the beginnings of the PR industry right here. It's close to home for me. So this is where they were. They would pay people as publicists to give speeches and write speeches talking them up. The great Erastus or whoever you know, has given this much money for this project and he knows this person and his connections. And this was just a normal part of life. This is exactly what these super apostles were doing. They were just talking themselves up all over the place 
talking up their achievements, talking up what great apostles they were, talking up all of their accomplishments. And in the process, guess who they were talking down? Paul. Because they'd come in and they wanted this kind of apostolic authority now over this church. And so in the process, they were trying to shame Paul. They were trying to portray him as a pretty unimpressive guy, as an untrained speaker, as someone who was just a tradesman, just a tent maker from the wrong end of town, someone who was unimpressive in his conduct and in his speaking. They shamed the way that Paul refused to take money from the Corinthian church because Paul didn't want to peddle the gospel for profit. But these guys were taking money and they were saying, well, Paul's Paul's just embarrassing you by, by refusing your kindness, by refusing your generosity towards him. And so they were always trying to cast aspersions on Paul, undermining his credentials as an apostle, undermining him as a communicator, as a leader, as a pastor, and talking themselves up. This is what Paul is dealing with in Corinth. These are the guys who he is opposing. He's in this strange kind of triangular relationship here where the Corinthian church is being completely led astray by these guys, completely led up the garden path. They are absolutely enamored with these super apostles. They just love these guys. They listen to their speeches. They think they're the best thing ever. And they've, just, they've really caught on to the style of ministry and leadership of these super apostles. And at the same time, they're kind of looking at Paul over here. And they're thinking, this guy just doesn't look so crash hot anymore. I mean, I know he's our apostle, he founded the church, but Paul, why can't you be a little bit more like these guys? Paul, why can't you do a bit of boasting? Paul, why can't you talk yourself up a little bit more? Why can't you be a little bit impressive? We want an apostle who has some gravitas. We want an apostle who can really handle himself. We want an apostle who is as impressive as these sophists. And this is the position Paul finds himself in as he writes this letter. And Paul could have played the super apostles game and he could have spent this whole letter talking himself up. He had plenty to talk up. He could have spent this whole letter playing the game and fighting them on their own terms. But Paul refuses to do that. Right through this letter, he refuses to boast. Paul says, I'm not going to boast. I'm not going to commend myself. I refuse to boast. He refuses to boast all through the letter. Refuses to boast, refuses to boast, refuses to boast. And then he gets to chapter 11 and he says, all right, you want me to boast? You want to hear my boasting? Here it is. Five times I received from the Jews the 49 lashes. Minus one. I've been beaten. I've been pelted with stones. I've been shipwrecked. I've been on the move. I've been in danger. Danger from my Jews. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the country. I've been at sea. I've gone without sleep. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. I've been cold. I've been naked. That's my boasting. And you can just feel the Corinthians dying of embarrassment, can't you? As he writes that. Like, this is Paul, their great apostle. The one that they're just hoping will just finally engage in a little bit of boasting so they can be proud of him. And he says, in fact, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm not going to talk myself up. I'm going to boast in my, what? Weakness. That's what Paul does. He says, I will delight in my weaknesses and the things that make me look like a failure. I'm willing to be humiliated. I'm willing to be a servant if it means that the power of Christ will rest on me. 
Paul just will not fight fire with fire, but instead what he does, he just turns the whole worldview of these super apostles, the whole worldview of the Corinthians, he just turns it on its head. And he says, I am not going to lift myself up. He says, what we preach is not ourselves. It is Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for your sake. You hear what, that's chapter four. You hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying, oh, I'm not going to lift myself up. The only one I'm going to lift up is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to lift him up. I'm going to put all the spotlight on him. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are just going to put the spotlight on Jesus. And if that means we are slaves, if that means we are servants, if that means we look weak and lowly and unimpressive, so be it. If that's what it takes for you to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus. That's all Paul wants. He just wants this congregation to see Jesus and he is prepared to be weak. He's prepared to be seen as a failure so that God's power would rest on him and so that the attention of these Corinthians would not be on him, but on Jesus. That's all Paul wants. So let's come back to the introduction. We'll flesh these themes out as we go through the letter. But Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, Timothy was one of Paul's ministry team, a core member of his ministry team, to the church of God in Corinth. Just a couple of words about Corinth. I won't, I won't do too much historical background on Corinth now. We can talk about this as we go through the series. The city of Corinth was just one of the great cities in the Roman Empire. It was on its way to being one of the, the biggest city in Greece on its way to being the wealthiest city in Greece. Someone has said that Corinth was like the, the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world all rolled into one. So when you think of Corinth, the city of Corinth, all you need to think about is this is a city Donald Trump would have loved. This is Donald Trump's city. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, just you don't need to do 20 minutes of historical background on Corinth. Just think Corinth, think Donald Trump. That's it. This was a city of wealth and opulence and luxury. This was a city where people came to get rich. It was a city of massive commerce because it was a port city, a bit like Auckland, on this little narrow stretch between harbors. That's where Corinth was. It was a city you came to get advantage, to get status, to get prestige. It was a city of tourism. It had this kind of Olympic-style games every few years that the citizens took great pride in. It was a city of culture, this great Greek city, this great Roman city, all this architecture that testified to the glory of Rome and the glory of Athens. And it was a city of huge religious diversity. It was very, very postmodern in many ways. That there were all these religious shrines, all these temples. You've got the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Apollos, the temple of Asclepius. And I can, I can imagine there, Trump Tower, right in the middle of Corinth. So think Corinth, think Donald Trump. That's all you need to know about Corinth. Right in the middle of this, little, of this huge city was a little church that Paul had founded. And it was now struggling to find its way. It was struggling in its relationship with its apostle. But look at how Paul describes the church here. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, some of your translations might say, together with all the saints. An older translation. That doesn't mean saints like Catholic saints, like St. Francis or St. Benedict. That word saints just, just means holy. It just means the holy ones. And that's, isn't it interesting that at the beginning of this letter, Paul specifically describes the Corinthians as the saints, the holy ones. I mean, he could have said 
together with all the sinners. But that's certainly what they were. Could have described them as sinners, given their behavior, given their conduct, given his relationship with them at this point. But he specifically names them as holy ones. And it's like Paul just speaks, not to, not to how they're acting, not to their conduct, but he just speaks to who they are in Jesus. He just speaks to their identity in Christ, who they truly are at the deepest level. That, that's a word for us to hold on to, isn't it? That, that God names us not according to how we act or how good or bad we are. He names us when we belong to him. He names us as his saints. He names us according to who we are in Christ Jesus. Even though we live such unholy lives, so much of the time God looks at us, he always looks at us and he calls us his holy ones. We are holy in Christ. We've got to hold on to that. And then Paul gives this greeting in verse 2. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, what, what Paul's doing here in, in, in standard letter writing in the Greek world, you would use the Greek word karain. And that word simply means greetings. It's a very generic word, very bland kind of word. Paul uses it a few times, karain. That was, that was what you did when you wrote a letter. But Paul twists that around. Instead of using karain, he uses a variation of that word charis, which is the word grace. So Paul takes normal letter writing practice and he reconfigures it around Jesus, which is pretty much what Paul does with everything. Same thing he does with boasting. He just takes something, he takes a convention in his day, in his culture, and he rewires it completely around the person of Jesus. Just shows you for Paul, this was what was happening in his life. His whole world just completely re-altered around the person of Jesus. So he says grace, instead of just greetings, grace, grace and peace to you. And those two words, they're not just a throwaway line. This is the heart of Paul's message. This is the heart of his life. This is the heart of his gospel. Grace and peace. Grace, as Mark said to us earlier, is God's unmerited favor, God's undeserved favor that he has poured out upon us, even though we don't deserve it, even though we haven't earned it, even though there's nothing in us that's worthy of it, God's love has come to us through Jesus Christ. And remember for Paul, this was personal. Grace wasn't an idea. It wasn't a theory. It wasn't a religious doctrine. It is something that had happened in his life and kept happening every day. It was the very real grace of God that had turned his life around from being a terrorist to being a Christian missionary. And Paul just believed from that point that if God can change his life, God can change anyone's life. If God can turn around the life of a terrorist, God can turn around anyone's life. All Paul really wanted, the way to understand Paul's whole ministry is just to think all he wanted was for other people to know the same grace that he encountered on the Damascus Road. He just wanted other people, maybe not in the same dramatic way, but he just wanted other people to know the grace and the unmerited mercy of God that he had received into his life. So he says grace to you. And peace. This word peace it has its roots in that old Hebrew word, shalom. Not just a little warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart, not just when I feel at peace, but this beautiful vision of all of life encompassed by the peace of God. And this is what Paul the Pharisee would have longed for as well. I mean, he read Isaiah, he read Ezekiel, he read the prophets. He knew this vision of the shalom of God that would one day transform this world and put everything right again and God would reign in the, in the center of it all. Paul longed for that as a Pharisee. But what he came to see is that this expansive shalom of God was now coming about in and through the person of Jesus, was now coming about 
through the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus, that Jesus has come as the bearer of God's shalom upon the earth. Jesus has come as the bearer of peace. That's why we talk about it Christmas, peace on earth. It's not a Christmas card greeting. It's the very real shalom of God that Jesus has brought into this world. We experience it now on the inside. We have peace with God. We experience this peace within our lives. But one day we will experience it comprehensively, expansively throughout creation. One day God's shalom will permeate every square inch of creation. The whole world will be filled with the beautiful peace of God. Human beings reconciled to God, to self, to others, to the world in this expansive vision of shalom. That's where history is heading. That's where scripture points us. That is the very real future that God is going to bring about. So with these two words, Paul's really telling the gospel, isn't he? He's saying grace has come. The unmerited favor of God's been poured into our hearts. So we've been given peace with God, and we have this peace in anticipation of the day when God's peace will reign upon the earth. That's really the biblical story, isn't it? From Jesus onwards, that's the gospel. That's his message, and it's encapsulated in these two beautiful little words at the beginning of his letter. So at the outset of this series, I just want us to linger for a minute over those two words. I know we're all keen to get into the, the guts of the letter, and we'll do that next week. But let's just pause for a minute and just reflect on those two words, grace and peace, because we desperately need these realities in our lives today. And you may be here this morning, and you're just needing that fresh touch of God's grace in your life, God's peace in your life. It's not just a greeting. It's not just a throwaway line in this letter. This is the heart of what God offers to us, gives to us through Jesus Christ. Some of you this morning need God's grace afresh in your lives. You need to know that you're forgiven. Some of you are just still living in guilt. Some of you are still living in shame, still living with a lot of condemnation in your life. And you just need to know this morning God's calling you out from under that to live in the freedom of His grace and the freedom of His forgiveness. Some of you this morning just need to know in a deeper way you've known before that you are forgiven that you are loved, and that you are cleansed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And some of you this morning need God's peace for the anxieties that are going on in your lives, for the uncertainties that are going on in your families, the worries that you have about your kids, the worries that you have about your parents, the confusion and the chaos and the uncertainty about the future, and you just need fresh to know the peace, the shalom of God in a deep way, that peace that transcends all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that inner shalom of God. Some of you need it this morning. You just need to ask God to pour into your heart afresh that shalom and let it settle in your soul to lead you to a deep, deep place of rest. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So God, as we begin this journey, we want to give thanks for this man, Paul. And God, we just think of how much he suffered. The humiliation and the mistreatment and just the awful stuff that he went through, God, in order to extend the good news to us. And we want to acknowledge, God, humbly that we sit here this morning as beneficiaries of Paul's mission because he took your word to those people who had never heard it. And eventually, the good news has come to us today. So we thank you, Lord, for this man and the calling you placed upon his life. And we just thank you 
that we see in Paul the picture of the transforming power of your grace. The power that you have to change the hardest heart. To turn around a life that is going so far in the opposite direction from you. And God, it gives us the faith to believe that you can still and you do still change lives today. And so God, now as we come to the communion table and we reflect on the sacrifice of your son Jesus, we want to ask that you would just touch our lives afresh with your grace and with your peace. We pray that this greeting that Paul gave to this church would be just a fresh revelation of who you are in our lives. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we, when we were dead, when we were just spiritual corpses, you came and found us. You came looking for us and you lifted us up and you forgave us and you set us back on our feet. We're so grateful to you, God. And we thank you that you have poured your peace into our hearts, that we have peace with you. Regardless of how we feel, God, we thank you that that is true for us today, that we have peace with you through Jesus Christ. And our hearts just cry out for the day when you will make all things new, for the day when there will truly be peace upon this earth and your peace will reign over all. So God, we thank you for your grace and your peace. We, we pray that through our journey into this letter and into the life of Paul and the world of Corinth, that this wouldn't just be information and it wouldn't just be history, but that you would work through this letter to change our hearts and to transform our lives through the same grace that transformed the life of the Apostle Paul. We pray these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.